Welcome back to TanakhCast. This is episode 175. We'll continue in the Psalms with a brief summary of chapters 87 through 90 and follow with some thoughts about time. Psalm 87 is an ode to Jerusalem, the city of God. Quote, The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwellings of Jacob. And it's a status thing. It's not enough that God loves Jerusalem, but Jerusalemites take pride in their city. They are its biggest boosters. They bask in its glow. Quote, Every man is born in it, and he, the Most High, makes it firm-founded. As the singers and dancers proclaim, quote, all my wellsprings are in you. Psalm 88 is about a very different locale, the thin line between life and death. Quote, for I am sated with evils and my life reached the brink of Sheol. I was counted among those who go down to the pit. I was in the pit. You were in the pit. We all were in the pit. And you have to wonder what's going on with the poet. In in one psalm, he's praising the city of Jerusalem, and in another, he's one foot in the grave, suffering immensely, feeling abandoned by God. Quote, Among the dead cast away like the slain, those who lie in the grave whom you no more recall, and they are cut off by your hand. And the people have turned away as well. But God's attitude is particularly stinging. Quote, Your wrath lay hard upon me, and all your breakers you inflicted. God laid down the beating and God can fix everything, but the poet wonders, quote, Will your kindness be told in the grave, your faithfulness in perdition? Will your wonder be known in the darkness, your bounty in the land of oblivion? In other words, if you kill me, who'll be around to sing your praises? That's a good point, Bear. Let's try that. Psalm 89 has two basic messages. God created and governs the world, and God chose the house of David to rule Israel. Quote, I found David my servant, with my holy oil anointed him, that my hand hold firm with him, my arm too take him in. No enemy shall cause him grief, and no vile person afflict him, and I will grind down his foes before him and defeat those who hate him. But there's the promise, and then there's the reality. David's kingdom is not a worker's paradise. Quote, you abandoned and spurned. You were furious with your anointed. You canceled the pact of your servant. You profaned his crown on the ground. You broke through all his walls. You turned his forts into rubble. The poet wonders, quote, where are your former kindnesses, master, that you vowed to David in your faithfulness? It's a good question. The poet, however, leaves that matter unresolved as he drops the doxology and concludes book three of the Psalms with, quote, Blessed be the Lord forever, amen and amen. Psalm 90 plays with time, God's time, eternal and endless, juxtaposed with the life of mortal humans. For God, a thousand years is nothing. They're like, quote, yesterday gone, like a watch in the night. In God's eyes, human life is like grass, quote, In the morning it sprouts and passes, by evening it withers and dies. Human awareness about the fleeting nature of time is coupled with a sense of dependence, quote, For we are consumed in your wrath, and in your fury we are dismayed. God sees all with an unblinking eye, the life of a person, quote, The days of our years are but seventy years, and if in great strength eighty years, and their pride is trouble and grief. For swiftly cut down, we fly off. It would be easier 
and better if we could live without all the trouble and grief, obviously. And the poet puts in a good word, quote, Sate us in the morn with your kindness. Let us sing and rejoice all our days. Give us joy as the days you afflicted us, the years we saw evil. And on that hopeful note, here endeth the lesson. In his way, the poet is telling us in Psalm 90 that time is relative. He didn't read Isaac Newton's Philosophe Naturalis Principia Mathematica, in which Newton lays out classical physics describing how objects move through space, including the law of universal gravitation and the foundation for calculus. In an appendix, Newton goes on to define what he calls the idea of absolute time. He knew that clocks weren't perfect and measuring time was subject to human error. But Newton, a believer in a universal omnipotent God, believed that, like God, time was the same for everyone, everywhere, even for God, I guess. So when Albert Einstein came along with his theory of relativity a couple of centuries later, he suggested that time wasn't a separate thing from space, but connected to it. People assume that time is a strict progression of cause to effect, but actually, from a non-linear, non-subjective viewpoint, it's more like a big ball of wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey stuff. And more to the point, anyone in space-time measures their own experience in it differently, because even though the speed of light is the same for all observers, they can't agree on the time it takes for other objects to travel relative to them. Uh. Yeah, I don't get that part either. Einstein also suggested that space-time wasn't flat, but curved or warped by matter and energy. Large bodies in space-time like the Earth aren't just floating in orbit. The Earth is like a bowling ball resting on a stretched-out blanket with the weight of the bowling ball warping the blanket. The Earth's blanket is space-time, so I get that part. So if I understand both ideas, I would say that someone moving through space-time will experience time differently, because if they're closer to a massive object, space-time is warped. Einstein called this time dilation. This phenomenon was demonstrated in 1971 with the cheapest experiment of general relativity ever conducted. Joseph C. Hafiel, I guess that's pronounced Hafiel, H-A-F-E-L-E, Hafiel, a physicist, and Richard E. Keating, an astronomer, obtained $8,000 in funding from the Office of Naval Research, of which they spent $7,600 on eight round-the-world plane tickets, including two seats on each flight for Mr. Clock. Their experiment involved taking four cesium-beam atomic clocks aboard commercial airliners. They first flew eastward around the world, ran the clocks side-by-side for a week, and then flew westward. The crew of each flight helped by supplying the navigational data needed for the comparisons with theory. Then, they compared the clocks against others that remained at the U.S. Naval Observatory. They found that the three sets of clocks were found to disagree with one another, and their differences were consistent with the predictions of special and general relativity. As I said at the outset, the poet did not read Newton or Einstein, but in his own way he alludes to time dilation, for God experiences time differently than us. If we imagine God's presence as massive, it would warp 
space-time, to an extent that, quote, for a thousand years in your eyes are like yesterday gone, like a watch in the night. Except that time dilation has a strange side effect, one the poet did not envision, but might also be oddly relevant. Imagine if you and I are zooming through the emptiness of space in opposite directions, and then we suddenly pass by each other. From my perspective, it seems like you're moving, and so time should go more slowly for you. But from your perspective, it seems like I'm moving, so it should go more slowly for me. So, yep, we both think time is going more slowly for the other. And yet, time isn't actually slower for each of us. You're out of your mind. In a sense, this is what the poet describes with God. From God's perspective, humans are here for what seems like a short time. Quote, in the morn they are like grass that passes. In the morning it sprouts and passes, but by evening it withers and dies. But we as humans do not experience this as the passage of a day. We experience it as, quote, the days of our years are but 70 years, and if in great strength, 80 years. For us, even in a transhumanist moment, seven or eight decades is a lifetime. Does this impact how we think about time and our time? Well, considering that God's been living in God time, since even before God time began, or time began, it's no big deal for God. And considering that we know we cannot trade places with God, despite the best efforts of Larry Ellison, Peter Thiel, and Sergey Brin, this radical disparity in time span is just what it is. Something you think about in and stop before it gives you a headache. But for a moment, before the ache sets in, one can imagine the poet and God passing each other in the dark night of space, moving at immeasurable speed, and the poet sees God and thinks, for a thousand years in your eyes are like yesterday gone. And then God looks at the poet and says, What the hell is even that? If you like what you heard today, spread the word about Tanakhcast. Tell a friend about Tanakh Cast Over Coffee. Send another friend an email or text, nothing fancy. Help your aunt who just got her first smartphone to download a podcatcher and subscribe to Tanakh Cast. And if you have a spare moment after all that, write a brief glowing review at Apple Podcasts. Apparently it helps people who might be interested in a little Bible learning vibe this podcast. And it's also a nice thing to do. If you want to help in an even bigger way, support us at Patreon. Just search for TanakhCast at Patreon.com and pledge your shekels either on a one-time or monthly basis and receive special blessings from the Most High. I thank you in advance for that and encourage you to join us again in two weeks for... Episode 176, when we continue in Psalms with chapters 91 through 94.